Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Welcome to Garden Views interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views and this episode we're welcoming in Marlene Sharp. She's done a whole lot of things and is doing a whole lot of things she's not done yet. She is a producer, creator, a writer. And we're going to have some fun talking about some intellectual property and the entertainment business. And for those of you who want to know, yes, we're going to be talking about some Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog's involved, and Chippendales, uh, the Rescue Rangers, not Chippendales, the, the dancers, <laughs> and the rumors about me ever being a Chippendale dancer, they're, they're largely exaggerated. Um, so, Marlene, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Oh, I'm very very good. Thank you. How are you? I am great. Thank you. I really appreciate you doing the show. I, I, I want to do a shout out to podcastguests.com. They don't ask for it, but uh, I mean, it's, it's been like sort of like a little Trevor treasure trove. And as of yet, there's been no catch. And since everything has a catch and this doesn't, I feel like until there is one, I want to <laughs> mention that there is none and how much how happy I am about that. And then, you know, one day we'll see if the shoe drops. But anyway, so yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself, like your, your background, your your origin story? Yeah, so I am originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, but I live in Los Angeles, which when I was in Louisiana, we'd call this the other LA. Sure. The abbreviation, and also because um, New Orleans has really increased as a filming location town since I lived there. When I lived there, it was, it, there was some location filming, but it it's, it's really uh, grown a, a great deal in the last couple of decades, for sure. And, um, but my original goal was to come to Hollywood and be an Oscar-winning actress by this point in time. Actually, I'm, I'm way off schedule, I gotta <laughs> tell you. Uh, <laughs> so, so I had to, I, I've had to regroup reinvent myself through the years, but I have continued to to do some performance. I mean, this is a performance right here, wouldn't you say? <laughs> so far, and, yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah. And um, but I the way that I make my living is working behind the scenes and I've done a, a lot of different jobs, including like you said, producer, writer, um, creator, creative executive is another one. And um I've worked in various capacities as an assistant, including uh, I worked for about two years at Disney as an assistant in their business and legal affairs division for ABC Cable Networks group. So that was an excellent education for me um, for all all the different jobs that I've done because um, intellectual property law is just integral and, 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 and... and it's, it's so entwined with show business, and it's often overlooked, especially by indie filmmakers, um, mm-hmm. music licensing and so forth. And, uh, and a, a big chunk of my career has been working for companies that are located overseas, but then want to have a presence in Los Angeles and Hollywood. And in some cases, I have been... I personally have been the LA office and then in other cases I'll be part of a small team with a home office, you know, Japan, Korea, Jordan, 
someplace else. And um, it's really interesting to observe the intellectual property laws or lack thereof in other countries and then right. to try to explain it to folks where it's not second nature. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting challenge that I've, I've encountered many times through the years. So, so I, I love to talk about it. So I'm, I'm delighted to be on your show. Yeah, I, I would echo that. It's, it's feels like a big unnecessary expense to a lot of acts or talents when they're on their way up. But what they yeah. don't know is by the time they've gotten big enough that it matters, they've probably already signed away some or all of the rights to somebody else at that point, And you never really get a chance to get that back unless you become big enough that you can negotiate it like a U2 or something like that. Um, right, you know, right. otherwise you're, you're stuck. And, you know, I, I, indie musicians, indie wrestlers, uh, actors when they're young. I mean, just even like owning your own stage name. Uh, it, it's just so important. I have a trademark on on my main podcast, Garden of Doom. Do I think it's ever going to uh, get to uh, the Joe Rogan levels? No, but if it does, uh, you know, I, I've got my trademark there. Um, and you know, I, I try and preach it. And you know, again, it feels like a lot of money to pe to people. But if they make it big, you know, they have to bank on their success. It really isn't all that. It's not that expensive an investment. Uh, especially with the dividends it could yield. So it's good to hear that from an outside source because I preach it all the time and I feel like sometimes I'm, you know, I'm in a, like a cave and there's no one else in there. Where, or oh, I'm in that know. cave too. And it, it, you would, you would be surprised at how many big companies are very loosey goosey about stuff like that. <laughs> um, all, all kinds of things. And then um, when, a movie is about to come out or a TV show and something, the word gets out and something's about to become public. And then another entity finds out that their copyright is being validated, uh, violated, not validated. No. Uh, that's when um, the panic really starts. If someone's suddenly threatening to put an injunction on the goings on. And uh, I had an experience working on a movie called Postman Pat the movie, which Postman Pat's a very beloved, iconic British franchise. I was the director of development at a company called RGH Entertainment, and I, I was very involved in securing the intellectual property. So it was pre-existing, so our, um, our team here in Los Angeles, and then the home office in Jordan, that was the home office of the company I was working for, uh, we secured the rights from classic media that then became DreamWorks in, during the course of our making the movie. But um, the, unfortunately, the Postman Pat theme song was not licensed during production, and um, that caused quite a problem when we wanted to put it in last minute into the movie, and <laughs> it it ended up being a huge expense and right. because we need, we needed to have it and somehow it slipped through the cracks and word got out that we were scrambling. So we had to pay the huge fee and uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a jolly little kid song, which it was, it was the, the, the theme song of this children's preschool TV show for years and years. It would be like um, telling somebody like the Mr. Rogers theme song cost hundreds of thousands of dollars right. to license and it was a it was became a crisis at the last minute so right. if you did the spongebob movie without the spongebob theme song it just wouldn't feel the same yeah and so so many shows are like that uh, um even if you just want to play a few notes of it it's just and and it's, it always makes me laugh when um when you hear somebody who wants to use or you know, b borrow somebody's intellectual property and they'll say like, oh, well, it's just, it's just one bar or it's just this character singing it or it's just, you know, playing on somebody's radio in the background. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Especially when you're on a production deadline and you need to get it out by whatever. E even if their case, you know, even if de minimis would be a successful defense, you don't have seven years to litigate that and go through appeals. It's, it's, much easier just to pay, you know, $50,000 or whatever the licensing fee might be to, to get the song um, and then go through all of that. So, yeah, so you were 
so you were at Disney, and then mm-hmm. and then uh, so well, well, yeah, I guess we 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 hadn't gone much further than that. Though you said you worked for a company in Jordan as well, which clearly isn't Disney. Um, yeah, <laughs> not Disney. No, right. unless there's some <laughs> secret. Unless we're breaking some news here. No, well, it was it was uh, DreamWorks adjacent because mm-hmm. what happened when when we uh, licensed the rights to Postman Pat, we we got those rights from we we were actually co-producing with Classic Media, which was a company that had a whole catalog full of heritage titles, and it, as it turned out, Postman Pat really spoke to the head of of the company RGH Entertainment, which was headquartered in Amman, Jordan. Apparently, uh, parents and families raised their kids on Postman Pat in Jordan, too. And so okay. so our CEO was delighted that it was available, and they had already developed a movie to a certain point, and you know, they were willing to share their early development with us. I was the director of development at, um, at RGH, which meant I would seek out intellectual properties that we could turn into movies and TV series, and, um, and then also work with with writers and producers and directors to get it ready for main production and most of what we did was in animation so there are three distinct parts of animation there's pre-production which is all the design work and then main production which mostly happens overseas and then um, overseas meaning at a usually a chinese studio an indian studio sometimes a korean studio um, and then, or sometimes in Canada, <clears throat> and then uh, post-production, which actually includes voice recording, but voice recording takes place at the beginning of the process, even though it's technically part hmm. of post. Right. And uh, anyway, yeah, so our CEO at, at RGH was so excited about Postman Pat, and, um, and then <laughs> we just read in the trades one day that Classic Media was bought by DreamWorks. That's how we found out. Right. And we were all in a panic because we thought, yikes, we're not making a DreamWorks movie. Ours is very much a very much lower budget right. <laughs> than the standard DreamWorks movie. So our, our movie, it went over budget. It was about 14, 15 million dollars in the end. But a typical DreamWorks animated movie is hundreds of millions of dollars so luckily dreamworks they audited everything that we were doing and they they approved it and we were allowed to continue with minimal interference or interruption so so that was good but we did have a few hiccups um due to a few unforeseen events but um but actually i got into the business originally of kids and family entertainment and animation um prior to working at disney i worked at a company called renaissance atlantic films in los angeles and that company was headed by the former president of bandai america and bandai is a toy company that up until a couple of years ago had the the toy rights to power rangers oh, cool. so that's how they became a big force in the toy and entertainment industry and together with another Japanese company called Toei, they, um, they grew Power Rangers to a franchise that eventually was exported worldwide. Right. And my old boss, Frank Ward was instrumental in that export outside of Japan. And so then he retired from Bandai. He had a consulting company and I went to work for his consulting company as my first official job in in hollywood and uh so that was my entree into kids and family anime um merchandise driven properties all all the things that i still do today (laughs) so i have a question i don't know if you're the right person to ask about but you're the person in front of me and you sound like you, you would at least know this it always drives me crazy when there's an animated movie and especially like a a product that you know property that has an audience already um, and even to live action. So, you know, this like the Avengers and you'll see where I'm going with this, but also more of your cartoonish or CGI Pixar. And they hire a high ticket, high priced actor as the voice actor. And we're never <laughs> going to see him. And it's like, 
why are you spending $20 million on Tim Allen and, and Tom Hanks? And why are you hiring Vin Diesel to say, I am Groot, I am Groot, or Bradley Cooper to be, you know, the raccoon? I sort of get like, you know, Seinfeld for the B movie because that's not a property. You know, you, you need to brand around something and something to get parents in as well. But, you know, other things... You know, not so much. I mean, especially with the Avengers, it's it, it's going to make a billion dollars whether right. whether Vin Diesel's doing it. So I'm just wondering what the what the thinking is. Like your movie's not going to stand or fall on who your voice actor is generally. Um, yes. You know, whoever has said you know to infinity and beyond, it probably doesn't matter to anyone outside their bank book. So what, what what is the thinking with the studio? Just like we need a big star, you know, to do promotion. Uh, you know, to go on yes. Letterman? Essentially, it's a marketing move. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's hard to articulate. And I guess various people would have various opinions on it. Mm -hmm. But in my view, it's, it's more important for smaller entities and un, unknown producers and production companies to have big names attached to their properties because they're unproven commodities and they need they need that halo effect of the star to make it um, desirable. Like people, for instance, people will go see a Disney movie just because it's Disney, Disney Pixar's next movie. Right. That's a given. But um, like when I worked for RGH Entertainment, no one's ever heard of RGH Entertainment. So who's going to go see that movie? And more important, maybe people would go see it. But the important thing to remember is that the gatekeepers believe these things. And there's a lot of old school thinking in movie distribution, movie marketing, just the movie business for all the groundbreaking technology and whatever. Um, in the toy business, I find this. And also in like the movie studio system, there's uh, everyone's very risk averse. And that's why you see a lot of reboots and sequels and so forth. And so even, I, I think it's uh, for, for many big studios, it's the thing, the uh, rationale is that, well, we're going to hedge our bets with a big name talent and rather than uh, it, it's, it, that's a lesser risk than have no name talent. And, uh, and, and, and I guess, you know, various executives debate things behind the scenes, but if a company has already apportioned the resources for A-list talent, then I guess they're going to go go for it if they have those resources available to them. But, but yeah, in my opinion, it's like the smaller companies that really can't afford it, they are the ones who really need it. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, I get it about the promotion and like if you're doing Moana, Mo, whatever the movie's called, you want Dwayne Johnson to be on all of the shows and, you know, it, it's going to get the, it's going to get promotion. Even if you, you don't go on the talk shows and things like that, the the papers are going to cover it, your local news is going to cover it, everyone, you know, yeah. everyone's going to, so it's, it's sort of like part of the promotion publicity. But at the same time, if you're an established studio making a movie and you think the, the movie's going to stand and fall without the, the, the name, I, I just, uh, but I mean, you've already answered. I just, I, maybe I'll just never get it. I especially don't get it though in terms of, you know, the MCU, which was well established before the, you know, you got around to having, deciding to hire a Bradley Cooper and a Vin Diesel. Not, nothing against either of them. It's just, I just don't know why you'd, you know, you, you couldn't hire me to say I am Groot, you know, at the minimum's <laughs> sag rate, know. you know. Oh, look, if I put my actor cap on, it's even more infuriating because, because it's so hard to break into the business as an actor. It's, it's catch-22 because you can only there are only certain roles, and especially for women, there are far fewer roles for women. And then if, if all the substantial roles are cast by young, good-looking, leading lady types, and, the, and who, who are like, you know, they're, they're, if you're young and beautiful, that, that's one category that is, uh, there seems, to, seems to always be in vogue. So if you're young and beautiful and unknown, you still probably find opportunities but 
if you're young and a character actor, probably the roles that you could be right for, and like even playing a little older, those will go by go to name act actresses. Right. And um, and then yeah, it just becomes really hard to to break in. And if if you're not a star, how do you get to you know how do you get to increase your worth as an actor? It's it's very difficult. So oh, sure. um, yeah, it's. But that, that's the business that we're in. There are a lot of frustrating things about it, but by golly, it doesn't discourage people because there are a ton of people <laughs> in this town who are pursuing this as a, as a career choice. Yeah, and I've had, had several on the show, and I know some other people that are working in the entertainment industry, and some have you know made it to the heights. Uh, you know, a couple of people of executive producers, and and you know, you know, one maybe sort of lucked out because of childhood friends and the, the well, entourage the, the show went on to you know in the movie oh, uh, yeah. you know and then another friend who who uh, i mean when i say friend i'm talking about childhood friends we're not actively in touch that you know is is a writer and and uh, writer and i think producer now is working on perry mason i know they did the the nick or the knack whatever that show was with clive owen i think um wow. you know my friend mark hammer is a producer but i know other people who and he's he's been on a on a few of my shows because we were for a while we were doing re- reviews of Land of the Lost and he was part of that crew. Um, oh, nice! Yeah, we never got through it all because it was very hard to assemble four people to at, to, to do podcasts. <laughs> but uh, um, <laughs> Mark Hammer is his name. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, I'm writing this down because you know this is a business of relationships. Mm-hmm. So I'm counting on you, Jeff, for some good networking outside. Oh, yeah. The well, recording today. Yeah, well, yeah, well, Mark knows we're still friends now. Mark Hammer with with the C, not the K. There's a there's a guy who wrote a movie, the recent one with um, I forgot the guy who played Tad Hamilton, Josh D D D. Anyway, that's a different Mark Hammer. Okay, my friend, he worked he worked on Peripheral. He worked on Young Rock. He he worked on a a little bit of. A, the Devil All the Time, that movie on Netflix. He's worked mm-hmm. on Magnum P.I., uh, the, the Scorpio, a, a ton, a oh, ton of movies. Great. Spy Games a while ago, uh, mm-hmm. a, a bunch of Tarantino movies, a whole, whole bunch of Heat, all, all sorts of stuff. So, um, you know, and then, uh, but I also know a couple of people who are writers who get some jobs here or there, and, and you know, some are waiting to hear and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it's, you know, listen, everybody who's, who's, watch enough media. There's always media about people trying to break into the business, having a hard time about it. So, um, but yeah, I, I'm good for a couple of things, but I had some, <laughs> I have a bunch of questions, but I don't, I still want to go through sort of your story. So let's take us to the next step. Okay. So let's see. So I worked for Renaissance Atlantic films. So that was, um, Power Rangers and that, that whole, uh, all the Saban, Saban entertainment was a big force in the U S in, in taking these Japanese intellectual properties and, um, Saban had the, the media rights and then Bandai America had the toy rights. So Haim Saban, the head of Saban entertainment and my old boss, Frank Ward, who was the head of Bandai U S they were, they were the ones who really popularized this set of IPs that, that Bandai and uh, Toei controlled. And so that, that was a good and profitable ride for them for many years. And um, so I worked for Frank for five years on, on Digimon, Power Rangers, um, uh, Beetleborgs, and all, all kinds of shows. And then, then I went to Disney for a couple of years working in um, as an assistant in business and legal affairs, which... I was thinking at the time that maybe I'd want to go to law school. So I thought that was, that was a, that was an opportunity that presented itself to me when Frank closed down his business and I didn't have a job and I was offered this position at Disney. And I thought, you know, this, this would be a great way to explore a law career because I did have a lot of interaction with um, Disney's business and legal affairs when I was at Renaissance Atlantic because Disney bought, the Saban Fox catalog. And so the last few months I was there, it was just all this transition of the the catalog. So, um, went to Disney, did not really like it (laughs) in working in production. I was in production legal, uh, for Disney channel and, um, what became Freeform, And, uh, 
I did make a lot of good friends there and, and contacts and so forth, but ultimately I was behind the scenes. I was applying for jobs elsewhere like crazy, and I ended up getting a job with a Korean studio. Well, let's that, start with um, Disney without, without you know, too much garbage or dirt or anything. Was it just like it was too corporate, too business-like, too or, – or, you know, or was there not enough chance uh, opportunity for advancement? I mean, you'd think that you know from the outside looking in, you go, you got a job with Disney, and you're and you're going to law school, and you're you're staying there. And but from the inside, it might be something different. So yeah, well, so I um, I guess it's a number of things. I really like the creative aspect of the business and wasn't ready to give it up. Mm-hmm. So at Renaissance Atlantic, I had stepped into a director of development role because I started out there as an assistant and then um, the the director of development had left while I was there and so then I inherited a lot of her job so I felt like I was moving up in the world and then to get the job at Disney was really a step back because I was an assistant and really the only way that I would have moved up in Disney business and legal affairs would have been to go to law school and um, get that entertainment law degree. And then that would have given me mobility in that division, but not necessarily in other divisions at Disney. And so um, while I was there, I, I did pursue transferring to another department, like um, doing more development. I, I, I like development a lot. All the, all the steps that go into preparing something to shoot or, or to, to animate, um, but it was it was really difficult. I met met with some HR people, and they were like, "Well, you know, the development jobs are few and far between, and if if you do get a job in one of those other divisions, you're going to take a huge pay cut because the legal assistants get paid the most." And I was thinking, like, "Wow, they do." <laughs> I didn't feel like I was I was uh, making huge amounts of money, but. But I guess because the development jobs are so much in demand, they can pay less. Right. And so, but still, I pursued that, and I, what I did not get very far at all because I was just put in a pool of candidates with everybody else. It wasn't like I got any special consideration being a Disney employee. I was just one of thousands of other people applying for these um, Disney assistant in development roles. So, so that's why I started applying elsewhere. Cause I thought the only chance for me to move up, I, I, I knew pretty early on that I didn't want to, to go to law school. Okay. First of all, I have an MFA in musical theater and, um, I don't like school very much. And so I, I was thinking like, this is going to have to be a fabulous experience to really want, <laughs> want to go back to school right. in anything. <laughs> and then, um, and it, and it wasn't that, so so uh, so I didn't, and so then I started looking elsewhere, and I was still acting at the time, right. so I ha- I've always had this secret James Bond like existence, this stealth existence of sneaking off and auditioning for stuff, oh, okay. and getting cast and stuff. You're not tricky martinis also, and uh, garroting people. What's that? Not tricky martinis and garroting people. Oh. No, 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 oh. no. It's it, it, not that, not not that kind of James Bond. The James Bond, in in, in my mind, is like sneaking around. Cloak and, and dagger. Um, you know, stealth, stealth mode. I have so, to, I have uh, to let my friend's dog out to watch them dog sitting for three days, and you know, while you're going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so kind of, kind of like that. It's a James Bond light. Right. So it's more, it's more like a, you know, sne- s- sneaky kid. <laughs> Trying to, right. you know, get, my get crown out. is loose. The doctor, the dentist said they can fit me in, so that's why I have to leave today at two thirty. But I'll be back uh, by four thirty. Exactly. In right. fact, I have right here. Well, I know you're not recording, but I found this recently. Oh, this artifact from my Disney days on my old Disney stationery. Um, you can see it says the Disney University notes. Yeah. And does. one day when I was at my desk, I brainstormed tons of excuses that I could use to get out of work for uh, auditions. And you and, and you put it down on paper. Let's see, that's mistake number one. Well, yeah, I know. I'm not saying that I was good. 
good good at my <laughs> stealth mode. I just did it. Right. Okay. Fa- <laughs> I might have been the world's worst at it. But, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. So that was always in the back of my mind, like, which is riskier? Which do I want to do more? I don't know. I probably right. made all the wrong decisions. Well, law school but is I, a big commitment, especially when it's night school. As a way of life. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. It's hard. It's hard to do everything. And then, I mean... If you're doing law school at night and working there, you don't have any flexibility in your schedule. You can't make up the day work at night because you're busy. You've got to study. It's a it's a four or five year you know commitment. So of course, yeah. So yeah, yeah. If you were trying to cast a wide net, that that's going to limit the amount of uh, fishing you can do. So anyway, we'll get away from my metaphor on that. So okay, so stuck with Disney, applied to other places, and found your way to a Korean studio called NMS. Um, so actually everybody, all my coworkers were outside of LA. Mm-hmm. I was, I was the LA office. I was also the only native English speaker in the company. And so pretty much everything that required a native English speaker <laughs> fell on my shoulders. So I was the accounting department, business and legal affairs. I was creative. I did, I did a lot of voices for things <laughs> that, uh, we needed. English. We, we recorded a lot in Korea, but ultimately, ultimately, this company wanted to be a global content provider, not a Korean content provider. So sure. at a certain point, things needed to be voiced in English. So then I was I was casting, I was voice directing, I was I was pitching, I was doing all these things. So I um, so I worked for the Korean studio for five years, and um, then after five years, the Korean company decided to cease doing business uh in the u.s and that was the end of my job so um i i had i started my own company with two partners called two twigs and a berry productions and we we did some stuff for a couple of years we um did a lot of contract work we did some animation for um the writer producer who who adapted the book hidden figures so ted melfi we did something for him and uh various other things we we created an original project that we sold to an israeli company and then um it was very hard it was very hard to sustain business model though even though we had some successes it was just difficult and so i had an offer to go work for this jordanian company after a couple of years so i did that and the Jordanian company was called RGH Entertainment. And um, uh, there was an LA office really near to where I lived, a small team. And the headquarters was in Amman, Jordan. And that's that's what I did after after that. And then after RGH, I went to Sega. And after Sega, I went to Level 5, which is Level 5 is very much like Sega, except there's, <coughs> excuse me, Sonic is Jibanyan from uh, Yokai Watch. So that's their marquee franchise is Yokai Watch. Oh, okay. Let's let's go back to Sega a little bit because Sega, I mean, that that's, that's huge. Everyone knows Sega. It, even if it's not the biggest company that, that you worked in the uh, top role, it might be the biggest one that people have heard on heard of anyway. And I understand that you worked on Sonic the Hedgehog. I did. Sonic was my boss. <laughs> See a good boss? And Sometimes. This, is it a he? Is Sonic a he? I, I don't know. He is, okay. yes. All right. So Sonic has a gender. That's exciting. Um, so uh, tell us about uh, a little bit about Sonic. I mean, a few years ago, I know they were everyone's excited. They made a movie. I know that the initial uh, reveals of the artwork or the graphics for Sonic was met with universal disapproval. And then it was redone to uh, much rejoicing and, and, you know, and good enough that it's you know the the franchise it's turned into like a movie franchise as well so were you yeah. were you there during that little uh, that little that little new coke snafu <laughs> yes and actually i think it turned out to be a pretty shrewd pr move unintended, unintended for sure right. but i think that whole moment in sonic history really um was uh, was fantastic in a number of ways because it was turned into a, a situation where the fans felt heard 
that, you know, they, and the Sonic bands are very outspoken. And I sat next to our community manager for a year and watched him deal with fans all day, every day. And wow, he would get a lot of abuse heaped on him. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, anytime anything would happen with a game or merchandise or, I don't know, even even things that would happen, like the fandom would fight amongst themselves. Sure. And then he, he would hear, it was almost like he was the, the mediator of the whole kingdom. And um, But one thing that seemed to be true across the board is that the fans wanted to be heard. So when I was there, um, we, we worked on a game called Sonic Mania, which was the first time I'm pretty sure it was the first time that Sega had put together an all-fan team of game developers and really solicited ideas from the community and then put it to, put, put it all together, actually hired people who were already making fan games and, and putting them out there for free for fans to play. They were assembled. Some of them were brought to Los Angeles. Mind you, it was a very grueling process, um, and I was only peripherally involved in Sonic Mania, but that turned out to be one of the most successful experiments that that preceded the Sonic movie. But the Sonic movie development was actually 10-plus years in the making, so a lot of people worked on that movie who... A lot of people who didn't get credit, myself included. So that's why I always like to give myself credit with sure. when I go on these podcasts because it certainly didn't come on the screen, which is unfortunate, but but that, that's just part of the business. Well, it's a household name even to an old fart like me. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Sonic is, um, let's see, 30, it's like 30, uh, 32 years old, I think, 32, 33. I mean, he's- that tracks. That tracks with my memory. But, you know, even if you're too old for it, you have kids or grandkids who, you know, probably played Sonic or have friends that have worn that shirt or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. A lot, there are a lot of entry points in, into Sonic. Some people know it from the cartoons because there have been so many through the years, TV series anyway. And so I was originally brought on to produce the second season of Sonic Boom, which was um, a Cartoon Network series a cgi series and um so but what happened was sega had offices in the bay area for like their u.s operations were in the bay area for like 30 something years and then in 2015 um sega japan the headquarters decided that um it was too expensive to to operate out of san francisco anymore so they laid everybody off or just about everybody from the Bay Area and started all over again in Los Angeles. And I, I believe that part of the rationale for that was the movie was looking more likely at that point. It had only been in development for five years at that point, Mm -hmm. but it was looking more positive that was actually going to happen. So it it seemed to, to make sense to have people who worked for Sega closer to where the movie people were there, you know, working and so forth. And then believe it or not, it was less expensive to do business in Los Angeles than San Francisco. And we were a small but mighty team of 14 people to start out with taking over from a hundred plus people in the Bay area. So I wore many hats. That's, that's also been a common denominator in my career is that, um, is that I wear a lot of hats, Job. especially working for small, smallish offices. Like if you're the only employee <laughs> in that office, or if you're one of a small team, you tend to get a lot of a lot of chances to do different things. So, um, so yeah, so that's what happened. I, I I was following the production that that was already in place for season two of Sonic Boom. But then it was also 2016 was the year that Sonic turned 25. And so the expectation from Japan was that we would, in the U.S., have a whole year's worth of fantastic activities to celebrate Sonic. 
and we pretty much had no budget and uh, no, there were no plans. And mm. we we all started working at the same time in the middle of 2015. So it was a mad scramble and everybody had to do a lot of different things. You mentioned over the course of the conversation that you've worked on, I believe, TV shows, video games, and movies. Is mm-hmm. there... Are there any major differences between working on those three different types of properties or is it all sort of the same, just a different platform? I would say games games are different from movies and TV in the sense that there's that interactive component and, um, and the games are usually things that are going to be sold directly to the consumer, whereas movies and TV are whether people want to admit it or not they're part of the marketing so especially for kids properties like it's not necessarily true for something like seinfeld let's say in the beginning of seinfeld there wasn't a whole there wasn't a toy company pulling the strings behind the scenes like how are we going to sell the seinfeld action figure and the play sets and this that and the other so with grown-up entertainment like the the merch the consumer products usually comes later after something's become successful usually like wildly successful and there's just a nostalgic demand for it whereas with kids stuff most of the time that's part of the plan from the beginning that's why hasbro and mattel are major forces in the entertainment business because they they are actively developing stuff movies and tv shows for their catalog of intellectual properties so i know Fans tend to complain about all the reboots and sequels and so forth. And I know it's frustrating. It's frustrating for people who want to break into the business with something new. And sometimes it's it's frustrating just your choices of what to consume. It seems like a rehash of a lot of things. But these companies take a lot of time and money to develop these intellectual properties to a certain point. And that's how they can justify putting money into the franchises because it's 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 like uh, putting money in a savings account or right. um, you know buying an annuity or something like that. It's 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 something that'll uh, pay dividends in the end. And um, and the screen content is really meant to drive consumer behavior. It's not necessarily meant to bring money in itself. For instance, Sonic Boom. That was a huge loss for Sega, and um, they could only really sustain it for two years because the the games and the merchandise were not selling. And so at a certain point, they had to just cut cut their losses. But if, if, if not too many people were watching the TV show, but it was selling gangbusters volumes of games and figures and themed entertainment uh, destinations were popping up or whatever... You can believe that that show would have continued on for a long right. time as a marketing tool. Right. If so, you're making the movie Seven, you're not planning on a lot of merchandise. But if you're making the movie, well, we'll just use Sonic. You know, that you're 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 assuming that there's going to be a, a video game, maybe multiple video games. You're you're assuming, you know, merchandise, shirts, clothes, lunchboxes, Lego. You know, uh, mm-hmm. action figures, collectibles, Funkos, whatever. You know, all of the, all of those things are going to be part of it. So even if the movie doesn't do so well, the the merchandise might carry it to you know sequel city anyway. It must. The merchandise must because oh. there's not there there's not money for that. So like for instance, um, with Sonic Boom, um, we had it was on a number of different channels all over the world. But we'd only get like maybe a few hundred dollars per episode licensing fee right. in some countries. And in the US, where where uh, this was, you know, some people would argue this is the most lucrative market. Um, we only got a couple of thousand dollars for our licensing fee on Cartoon Network. And the show cost several hundred thousand dollars to make. So there's a very much of a shortfall. So if we're not, even with, with the show being on in, in 100 plus countries or territories, it still was not enough to even, to break even. Right. So, so um, it's kind of like, if you think about making commercials, you know, somebody's going to make a very expensive Super Bowl commercial 
that is a sunk cost. I mean, it's going to have a shelf life a few weeks or months around the time of the Super Bowl, but a company will put forth that expense because they feel like it's a, it's a worthy roll of the dice. And it's kind of like that with creating content around these game or toy characters. <clears throat> and at least there's a chance that those things will live on. Right. And and they'll they'll have some return on investment. In the best case scenario, they'll they'll the, the content will make a lot of money on its own. But really, that's meant to be like an investment. Um, and and sometimes those things require their own advertising too. It's an advertising expense that requires advertising for people to know that it's there. It's just an expensive business, and um, and that's why when a company happens upon a big hit. They want to preserve it and uh, really, you know, it represents a lot of years of hard work and a lot of people's contributions and so forth. So right. they so, want to keep it going. So Sony will desperately hang on to the Spider-Man B, C, and D characters for all of that. Those are things, even if uh, Mobius is a gigantic flop, not once but twice, uh, they, they still think that they can sell shirts and merch and, or at least incorporate Mobius into future things with, I don't know, Venom and the Vulture and, you know, Spider-Man. But so that's really interesting because uh, like I'm, I'm trying to think of a flop and probably things I, I you know, the, the flops I forgot about because I'm not a kid. But like, you know, I, I think that like within the last 20 years, they tried to do Casper the Friendly Ghost, which when I was a kid was a cartoon. I don't think it did very well. But for, you know, but if you get hit one Lightning McQueen in cars, you know, that 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 pays for, you know, six flops or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, or, or Frozen, which sort of came out of nowhere. And then now it's like, you know, legendary. Um, yeah. But let's let's talk about what I know that is near and dear to your heart, and of course is near and dear to, dear to mine, and that's the intellectual property and specifically the the licensing. So basically, you know, I guess from a high view, what are the different types of intellectual property that you've been involved with, and what what are the different types of sales and licensing arrangements? Oh golly, so many things: books, music, toys. Um, what are the typical arrangements for, like, if you're selling toys, are you selling the rights to, say, Mattel or Hasbro, or are you licensing, you get a royalty? Like, what's the royalty percentage to, like, a Sega from a Mattel? Is it 10%? Is it a 1.5%? Is it 20%? Uh, is it nothing like that at all? The answer is anything goes. There are no rules, um, and there are no... Uh, there are case studies, mm-hmm. but there's not like a rule book saying this is how much this costs or there's not even a standard deal template or anything like that. It's, um, it's literally everything's negotiated. Negotiate. I'm sorry. It's, it's everything is negotiated case by case. It's, it's literally yes. like that. Wow. Yes. yes. Everything is negotiated because sometimes the intellectual property will be part of Mattel's catalog. Mattel, mm-hmm owns a lot of IPs. Barbie, for instance, uh, you know, Hot Wheels, all all kinds of things. And so sometimes Barbie will want to do a movie or a TV show based on what what they have um, planned for the brand with regard to sales, but they might not have somebody wanting to, uh, they might not have Mattel might not have all the money that they need to produce such a thing, so they'll have to go. They'll have to go to third parties for partnership, financing, you know, collabs, whatever. So it's and, the um, reverse. The studio is licensing the right to do it, and exactly. and and they're maybe getting. I'm making this up. They'll get seventy percent of the revenue, and thirty percent is going to Mattel. What? You know, I'm making up the split because apparently there's no standard. I mean, I know that in music, that if like you're a cover band or you're a regular venue or you're a bar and you want to play music, you can pay BMI or the Harry Fox agency sort of set amounts of money for a year. But in a movie or a TV show or a video game, that's different, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it depends on if you, and, and also it's, it's hard to look at something on a screen and say, Oh, that was a, this, that was this kind of a licensing deal. You don't, really ever know like sometimes sometimes a a property owner will give something well 
like for the case of Power Rangers. So Power Rangers outside of Japan, my, my old boss Frank used to say, we couldn't give this stuff away. Like for seven years, they were pitching it to various networks in Hollywood, hoping that somebody would give a license fee for the episodes that were in Japanese, but then were tweaked for American or Western audiences mm -hmm. and dub, tweaked, meaning dubbed, dubbed, edited, localized or whatever. And nobody wanted, nobody wanted to put forth any money for that. And so, so, um, at a certain point, um, Haim Saban and my old boss, Frank were given permission by Bandai Japan and Toei to give it away. They gave it to Fox Kids Network and they said, here, we, we, you don't have to pay us any license fee at all. Uh, we just, we feel so confident that the toys will sell outside of Japan. That's that we just, we're doing this as an experiment to see what will happen. Hmm. And so they gave those rights away to the Fox Kids Network and to this day, they're still selling boatloads of toys. There is no more Fox Kids Network, but um, but that was that was a case of um, giving something away. You know, essentially pay to play, um, and what? that happens too. A, a lot of um, consumer products companies will essentially buy advertising time on a kids network. In addition to taking like a small, they call it the, there's an imputed licensing fee. So um, it's really just, you get like a little discount off of the ad spend that you're supposed to be, be making. Um, I know this is all really getting into the weeds, but if it's a third party company like Lego or Mattel or MGA Entertainment, Hasbro, and they have a show that they want to see on Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or what have you, it's not uncommon for it to be some kind of pay-to-play deal where um, they, they really need that show to be on TV or you know, a movie to be in theaters or what have you. And um, it's, it's not like, even though the network is getting an opportunity to have some quality programming, they're not paying for it in the way that uh, you might think. It's not really a licensing deal. So it's being subsidized by the toy manufacturer. Where the toy ma manufacturer is getting a lower advertising rate. Is is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, but not necessarily even a lower advertising rate. They're just they're um, it, it it just depends on how demand how much in demand the property is. Like if if let's say Lego goes to Cartoon Network with with a Star Wars Lego special. Mm -hmm. That's something that people want to see. So so the um, Lego, I guess, because they produce those, those specials, the Star Wars Legos, but, well, that would be like a joint venture between Lucas, I guess, Lucas Disney and, and Lego. And they, if they would go to a network like Cartoon Network and they would say, hey, we've got this. Um, you know, what, what, what could we do to get this on your, your air? Uh, the, there's a negotiation that happens based on the value of the intellectual property, the demand, you know, with star Wars, that's, that's going to be a different deal than like, if you were taking sure. like Casper, the friendly ghost out of the archives and saying, Hey, we've got Casper, the friendly ghost. Well, it, it it's right. debatable how much star Wars up make. here, Casper down, down there. Yeah. So people who have a, a, a an intellectual property that is in demand, they have some, they have a great deal of leverage, and so so there might be more money for them. I I, I guarantee you, there's more money for Star Wars than there is for Casper's <laughs> Friendly Ghosts right now. Let me show so, my age a little bit here and ask you. And I don't know if you'll know the answer to this or not, but I think in the same year. Shrek 3 came out and the girl with the dragon tattoo, the English version came out. Mm -hmm. and, and the only reason I bring this up is because in, in Shrek 3, when Snow White or the rain got all the animals to invade the castle, they had Led Zeppelin's The Immigrant Song playing. And mm -hmm. then in the girl with the dragon tattoo, either the theme song in or out or both was the immigrant song, same song, but Trent Reznor's version. Oh. And, and I'm just wondering if there's some difference in in how that's treated from the studio perspective. I mean, 
do they just buy the like is one just licensing the the zeppelin version is another one you're licensing the zeppelin version but then you're getting you have to pay more because trent reznor is going to do a cover or is just you're more trent res you're hiring trent reznor to do his cover yes it it and it's all very nuanced it you can license like the original performance and that's one price or you can license the the right to perform and then that's that's a different set of rights and i think the 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 cost behind each one depends on what is more in demand like if it's judy garland singing somewhere over the rainbow it will be it will command a much higher price than marlene sharp singing somewhere over the rainbow so it, but then again, if it you know some unknown person, if it, it, it just depends, right. and like sometimes, like think of the um, instance of like Dolly Parton doing um, "I Will Always Love You." I mean, that's like that was her song. She wrote right. it. She performed it. it. It did modestly well. But then when Whitney Houston sang it in the Bodyguard, that was a whole new level of awareness and whatever sure. so i would say that whitney houston's version is probably the definitive version now so if Absolutely. you wanted to license whitney houston singing that it's going to cost you a lot more than dolly Parton right. <laughs> singing it in the in its original version so it's all like i said a negotiation but speaking of which jeff mm -hmm. i'm so sorry but i i need to wrap up because oh. duty calls and <laughs> i have a Another Zoom at 3.30. Okay, amazing. All right, well, thank you for all of that. Um, well, I guess tell people where they can find you and uh, if there's anything that you need to promote or anything like that. Oh, sure. Well, I'm just promoting me, so okay. <laughs> hire me. <laughs> hire me for all of your, your entertainment needs, creative, business, and otherwise. And you can find me at pinkpoodleproductions.com. And I'm also a maniac on LinkedIn. So please link with me and good times will ensue. All right. Thank you very much for your time and your expertise. If you ever want to come back, chat again and talk yes. then. Right, very good. The sequel. The awesome. sequel. Yeah, the, exactly. The sequel. I'm going to merchandise the hell out of this. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Good luck on your next Zoom call. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks for joining us here on Garden News. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Side.